Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Thank you so much, Ferenc, for coming here to find that support, that help, the the tools, tricks, tactics, and techniques you need to get through this time you're going through. I know that if you're a listener to this show, you're either worried or you're past worried, your kid's at risk, or as the show is titled, Beyond Risk. And of course, our goal is to help you get your family back. And to that end, I think this is a very special episode because we talk a lot about what's going on with the kid, the tools. We talk a lot about what's going on with yourself and your parenting. Let's talk about your relationship. And specifically, let's talk about marriage and divorce. I have worked with parents now 20 years and knowing how hard this situation is on parents who are agreeing or not agreeing or just going through this together or finding this thing that they're going through with their kid, pulling the whole family apart, separating themselves. I have Nancy Smith. She is an attorney at law. She is gonna tell you why she wrote the book she wrote, why she works with divorcing couples and what her new strategy she's promoting is. I want you to hear this. Nancy's got this figured out. So again, lots of families should be here listening to these shows. You are. That tells me everything I need to know about you. So this is my big thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening, liking, subscribing, sharing, and leaving a review for us because I've said this every time, this helps other parents find the help they need to help their kids. You're here. Let's get other parents here as well. My guest today, is Nancy Smith, attorney at law. Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, I'm delighted to be here. So let's start right out of the gates. How long have you been a an attorney? And do I call it a divorce attorney? Or are you a family attorney? So I'm an attorney and I practice in the area of family law and I've been doing that for 30 years. Got it, and why? <laughs> Why? Well, that is always, that is the question I ask myself every day. But I mean, this is a I, heavy one. Family law, family practice. I have sent people to to attorneys like you. It's not ever for like things are going really good. You should call Nancy. It's like that's not how this works. You're getting the call. You're getting the conversation when things are coming apart. So why? It's nice to be able to be of service and to help people through what I know is an excruciatingly challenging time of life. Right. And a bad divorce is an adverse risk for a child. And so I understand your audience is dealing with kids that are at risk and or beyond risk. And for those families, I can only say one, I I understand you and I've been there and done that. And getting the correct support is crucial to surviving this, either whether you stay married or whether you end up separating because you are always going to be the parents to this child and you are setting the example for how your child can experience stress, trauma, conflict with some degree of dignity and mutual respect. And that's a huge gift that you can give to your kid, especially when they're struggling with their own stuff. Divorce is going to cause trauma in a child, period, plain and simple. Even if the parents need to be divorced because it's been abusive. It's been, there's been infidelity and the, the, 
the child is witnessing this, this discontent, this malcontent. But even that process of splitting a family, even in the best of or in the worst of, it's going to traumatize a child. Do you believe that? This is what the therapists say. Do you believe that? I think it really depends on the circumstance. And children have different levels of resilience, right? And what a divorce is going to do, what I know, um, and when you suggested that I had it all figured out, I would humbly suggest that is not true. But I've seen a lot and I've been around. And what I know is that divorce is a grieving process for everybody, for the entire family system. It's going to have an impact on every single member of the family and extended family and community. It is going to um, create an opportunity to be your best self when you feel your absolute worst. And it's an opportunity for personal growth and empowerment if you choose that. Or it can also be an opportunity that your life is going to get crushed and you're not going to know what hit you. And I would submit that how it impacts you know, whether it's trauma, whether it's not, it can be, it can certainly be a traumatic experience. And it can also be a healthy healing opportunity when people just recognize that the marriage isn't working and that's okay. It doesn't have to be a shame and a blame game. It can be an opportunity to accept radical responsibility for your own contribution to what's going on. And this is going to be separate from your child's experience of what's going on. Because if you've got a child in treatment or you got a child who's really on the edge, you know, you're obviously your first instinct is to protect your child however you can. Once you get them safe, then the opportunity is how are you going to manage yourselves? Are you going to be honest? Can you be honest with your spouse and yourself? And if the marriage is not working, take a step back and then assess options for how to undo it in a way that's going to be healthy and promote eventual healing, wholeheartedness. Otherwise, you're going to end up bitter and resentful for the rest of your life. So that is pretty much what I know. How many bitter divorces versus amicable divorces in your practice? What's what's your ratio that you see? Well, at this point, I've completely transitioned. Me, along with other lawyers across the country, have completely transitioned our litigation practice to collaborative divorce, which is a different model. It's a yeah. model and a mindset. And so right now, 100% of my cases are collaborative because I'm no longer accepting litigation cases because I do not believe that the adversarial system serves families. And it certainly doesn't serve children. And I think to your point, I could say yes, with a high degree of confidence, if you engage in an adversarial divorce process, your child will be traumatized by that because that level of animosity and the maintaining that degree of adrenaline and vitriol and sort of anger that you need to go to the fight, it's not a martial art <laughs> divorce because people are not coming into it recognizing that their adversary is not really an adversary. They're just their, their training partner, right? And it they don't recognize it that way. It's not looked at. It's an adversarial system. And when you go in with an adversarial mindset, you are going to likely come out adversaries. You're not going to shake hands and bow at the end of this. Um, it's going to be go to your separate corners, live separate lives. Do not think that you're going to show up at the you know, at your child's wedding down the future in an amicable way, it's going to just create a really rough ride for everybody. So to the extent that people who are listening take a moment and think, well, the marriage does not seem to be working. What are my options? And I would say your first option is to check in with a collaboratively trained attorney who advertises themselves as such and just get some basic information before you make any decisions. Just get a lay of the land and have um, have your person be with you so that you can engage in a process that 
conforms to your core values of dignity and integrity and respect and transparency. Like those things are critical if you're going to end up uh, in a divorce that is not going to traumatize your children. You said something at the beginning of what you were just saying there that I think is really a powerful statement. You said maintaining that energy for this fight. Maintenance is a choice. Maintenance is an action. Maintenance is something that you've decided to do. I, I believe that a lot of people who've gone through tough divorces don't realize that they're keeping this thing alive, this, this vitriol, this, you know, this aggression, this animosity. But you're right. There's a maintenance to it. There is. And I, I think that's a really interesting point. Sometimes I think, though, I'll give the clients a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes they don't, if, unless they have a good therapist and they're working through it, which all my clients, that's the first question I ask. I'm like, so who's your therapist? And then they look at me, you know, either why, what's wrong with me? I'm not the problem. You know, it's my spouse. And then I say, oh, come on now. Like, if you want to work with me, you're going to have to have a therapist. Um, and then we see how that works. Or I just don't work with that person because you have to have some degree of insight and be willing to take a look at yourself. This is what the opportunity of divorce, I think, is all about. It's like, it is your opportunity to be the person that you always sort of thought you were going to be, um, but maybe couldn't manage that in that institution. But sometimes the clients don't realize, and maybe it's the lawyers, there's not a, an, an acknowledgement of the grieving, the grieving process that a divorce represents. And so if you can look at divorce like I do through the lens of grief, you might, the lawyers don't really do this unless you're practicing collaborative divorce. We just we take you as we find you. You are very vulnerable. You are hurt. You are scared. You do not. You've got a ton of anxiety. You have no idea what the future is going to hold. And there aren't that many models out there for having a good divorce. So most people don't even go into a divorce lawyer thinking that this could be an okay situation. And it actually could be empowering and healthy. So the clients may not know it. The lawyers don't recognize that people grieve at different levels. And so four or five, six months in, the client might be feeling okay and not so vitriolic about their spouse. But by the time you get to court six months later, you have to drag it all up again and go in and be prepared for battle. I don't know if it's a chicken and egg, but I think if we looked at it from a lens of grief and recognize that anytime somebody wants to get divorced or says the word, the D word, right? It just sends, you know, all of your blood goes out of your body. You, you feel like you're in fight or flight. You're being, you feel like you're being attacked. And you feel like you must defend yourself, which is what I think causes people to go to the, the biggest shark in their neighborhood, you know, so that they can get protected from something. They don't even know what they're really afraid of, but it's the loss. It's the grief. It's the loss of your identity. It's the loss of your best friend. It's the loss of your lover. It's the loss of your parenting time. Somebody's going to lose a home. So, you know, you're going to lose some of the family wealth. And the thing that I think really gets people right in the heart is that you lose the dream of what you thought you were building. I think even on top of this, there's also the fact that your values have been violated. You know, that, that someone has done, at least perceived or real, someone has done something that has caused this thing to come apart. And unless you were intentionally doing that. Nobody wants to be that person. I remember listening to a CIA operative uh, talk about her years in the field. And she said, the biggest thing that I've learned in all these years of being an agent undercover in the field is that nobody thinks they're the bad guy. 
And I would have to assume that that's what's going on here with these two people coming into your office. Unless one person is very clear is, I messed this up. She wants away from me. I totally get it, but I'm not willing to be called a bad parent because she doesn't like what I did behind her back or whatever, you know, that there's a, but somebody's values have been so violated. And I believe that that's where anger comes from, violation of a value system. And so here we are and somebody says that one thing and the, well, you begins to start, you know, well, I, maybe I, but you, but you, but you. And at some point, someone is, someone's going to say something that makes you go, I'm going to fight this person. They're not going to get their way. I'm going to get mine. Is that just survival? Is that, is that just anger? Or is this because of some other reason? I mean, how much of what you have seen in these years is actually conscious behavior? Oh, I don't think it's so conscious. I think until you do the work um, and end up in therapy to identify how it is that you ended up in the situation, whether you're the one asking for the divorce or whether you're on the receiving end of the divorce. I think really what it is, it could be a challenge to your values, but I think really what it is, is it's a challenge to your identity. Somehow you do not feel worthy and somebody is rejecting you. And so I do not ever underestimate the power of rejection on the human spirit. It makes you crazy. And so that's when you cannot think straight. You're listening not to not to understand where your spouse is coming from. You're listening to defend and justify your position, which is, I don't know, emotionally not that mature. I think you could do better. I think you could, if you said you loved this person and you got married and we spend so much time and energy valuing the institution and the wedding industry, but we have no good rituals for how to get out of it when you may yeah. just outgrow the relationship, which is okay. But because we live so long, we have these expectations that, you know, one marriage is going to be it, but 50% of them end in divorce anyway. So rather than being all shamey and blamey about it, what about just reconstituting yourself, coming to the conversation with that love that you originally told, you know, everybody and each other in front of your, the God of your understanding and how much you loved and valued each other forever, rather than throwing that all out the window. Why don't you say, I do love and value you and I can't live with you anymore and we need to separate. <laughs> and I think that would be good for our family system. What do you think? And how about, how about I actually learned about a process where you get your own lawyer, I get my own lawyer. They are both collaborative lawyers. They're trained to be non-adversarial, not aggressive. We don't go to court and we work with a team, an interdisciplinary team that's going to address all of the issues that we have. Every divorcing couple has financial issues, emotional issues, and legal issues. That's that's Those are the facts. So the lawyer traditionally handled all three of those aspects. But in a collaborative model, which is the new paradigm, you get the lawyers doing the lawyer business. You hire the mental health coach to be the person to normalize all the intense emotions because there are intense emotions that come up. And family of origin things get triggered, your abandonment issues, your attachment issues, all that stuff. So that's where I think where we're talking about the subconscious. I think that's the stuff that starts percolating that then, then makes you want to fight and hold on to your position and defend yourself. But I would suggest that that's super old, like, you know, lizard brain stuff. And I think you could engage your executive functioning a little better if you knew that that was what was happening, if people understood it with a little bit of compassion, if you understood yourself better, if you could understand that your spouse is speaking out of fear and not their higher selves, you know, like I think there's just an opportunity for growth. And so the model allows that because the divorce coach is there to 
improve your communication because generally speaking, in my experience, people don't divorce um, because they're communicating so well. Like communication has failed mostly because there's been a lack of accountability. Like between the two of them, there's no accountability. So in a collaborative model, we have accountability. We learn how to effectively communicate our needs and our desires and our fears and our hopes. And we do that together as a team so that nobody feels like they're going to get screwed over. Because that's one of the bigger fears that's in the back of everybody's mind is somehow this divorce is going to ruin me. There seems to be a balance and and certainly being uh, someone who's done men's groups over the years, um, there's a, there's a, there's an interesting balance that I'm curious about, about like obviously the amount of single moms after a divorce situation versus men who are um, feeling that courts take the woman's side immediately, that father's rights are being you know, disparaged against, and that there's even, you know, I, I can't even think of the term where men are feeling like they're, the, the, the children are being withheld from them f- by the mom and, and find no recourse. I, I, had, a, I had a buddy who, who fought this for 11 years with his ex in the Chicago courts, and it, it was... He was devastated and he lived at my house watching him call his son every night and and the wife years, five years after still trying to intervene on these calls and stuff like that. But then again, remember, I, I said that versus moms who end up raising these kids by themselves after a separation or a divorce. What are we looking at now? Is there a change in this too? Are courts changing and looking to dads? It's like, even though maybe he had an affair, that doesn't mean he's a bad dad. Are they are they still just leaning towards moms? Are, are more and more women saying, nope, you blew it, these are mine. I, I, I don't want to sound plastic or misogynist here, but I want to understand are dads afraid of divorce because of this? Are moms afraid of divorce because of the single parenthood factor? What are we looking at with that dynamic? Number one, I'm a huge father's rights advocate. And I think that the presence of fathers, I mean, all the literature says that children do better when their fathers are around. The tender years doctrine. Whether their fathers are are good guys or kind of jerks, it doesn't really matter. It's, It's important that the kid has their own independent experience of their other parent. And the other parent should not be interfering or getting in the middle of a relationship between a parent and a child. When right. it comes, there are levels of that interference. They call it parental gatekeeping. You know, there's different levels. Sometimes it's justified. If somebody's not safe, then the parent sure. gets involved and wants to protect the kid. And it doesn't matter what gender. I think that we've kind of evolved to a new place where if there's a father, because the gender roles have been shifting for the last 20, 30 years, if you're a dad and you're a stay-at-home dad, then you're going to get, you know, as much custody as the old-fashioned stay-at-home mom would have. And if you're a dad that wants to be involved and has the capacity to be involved and you can adjust your schedule and you step up and you say, I want to be involved, my experience is that the courts are very supportive of fathers and people having shared custody. Even though sometimes there's not a presumption that you're going to share custody, there's at least you know, you might not get the decision-making authority, but you'll get at least 50-50 contact, which I would argue is really more important that you have an influence on your children by the more time you spend with them. But you also have to be a good person. Like you can't be off the rails and, and or abusive, right? And so I think there's that. This issue about, you know, 
the, the current literature, there's a woman, Esther Perel, who talks about, mm-hmm. she's got two great books, right, about mating in captivity and a state of affairs. And her state of affairs is the one that I most recently read and, and reference in my book, you know, more women are having more affairs, you know, like people are stepping out of marriages for a lot of different reasons. And the whole institution is sort of under scrutiny at this point, like what's the value of, of marriage? And if you're going to be married, you know, can you do it in a way where you are engaging in honest communication? Sometimes what I see in my practice is people are so afraid in their marriage of speaking the truth because they don't want to hurt the other person's feelings or they are too codependent and they haven't really like they keep pointing fingers or they're scared of the reaction or they're just not in their authentic selves. And so they're so scared of even speaking up. By the time we get divorced, we can say, look, it, you can say whatever you want. Like the worst that you had feared is now happening. So you're getting divorced. We have a safe container. Just feel free to express yourself. Something that's coming up as I'm listening to you and I talk back and forth is that we are not referencing abusive marriages at all. We are talking about marriages where the disagreements have become destructive, that the the, the changes in growth, <laughs> development, these types of things are causing, you know, the, the different sets of opinions, the different sets of parenting. We're not getting along. That is different than abuse. And and I'm I have no doubt of what you would recommend to put words so that we can state the obvious. If you're in an abusive relationship, get out and take the kids with you, get help, get support, get to a safe place and make sure you get the backup you need to navigate this next step uh, uh, powerfully. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what the court's for. Yeah. And if you need the court, you go get it. Um, Yeah. Go get help. Your book, Untangle Your Marriage, A Guide to Collaborative Divorces. This seems to me like this concept has to be a two-way street. Is that right? Both people got to participate? It's a voluntary process. It requires both people to obtain collaboratively trained attorneys and put a team together and be committed to the process. If one person does not want to or isn't interested in anything the other partner has to say, is there a strategy you have of kind of a one more try, say this? for that one parent who does want to do this in a collaborative fashion? So this is often a challenge because people come and say, well, I'd love to do this. It sounds really great, but my spouse is completely unreasonable and will never agree. (laughs) So that happens. And if that's the case, there are opportunities. Either the lawyer could write a nice letter to the other spouse and say, hey, I'm going to do this. You know, I want to represent your spouse and we'd like to do it in this process. And we could give literature and some materials to understand what a collaborative is. A collaborative divorce is, you can go to my website, you could watch videos, you could go to the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals and, you know, um, see how you'd like to maybe get divorced in a different way. It's not for everybody, but it's certainly an option. How did this whole collaborative concept start? It seems kind of like a duh, like, of course we should do it this way, but that's not how it's been done. To your point that this is a different path. How did this show up? It started around 30 years ago in Minnesota with a lawyer named Stu Webb and his one of his colleagues, a, name, a guy named Ron Owski. And the two of them decided one day, they said, it just doesn't seem to make sense that we have to go to court to help people manage their finances and separate and allow and create a parenting plan for two people who love their children and want to be involved in their lives. Like, why do we have to go to court? So the two of them decided we're not going to go to court. We're just going to roll up our sleeves and take care of all this business ourselves. And so that they wrote a book about it called The Collaborative Way to Divorce. It kind of took off uh, over time, over about 10 years, 
another leader uh, from California, Pauline Tesler, added in the mental health components mm. because they realized, and the financial neutral, which I didn't actually mention, the financial neutral is great because those people love dealing with money and finances and collecting data and creating spreadsheets and showing you exactly how your cash flow is going to look, you know, 10 years from now. And they're lovely. And they're also trained in mediation and have mediation skills in addition to their financial skills. And they can help answer questions about tax implications and other things, um, financial planning and things like right. that. So the, the model got expanded and it's constantly evolving. And now it's practiced in every state in the country. It's recognized by the American Bar Association as a form of limited representation because the lawyers agree in advance not to go to court. We, we take care of business by coming together um, as a team. And so I think the first step is if you are interested in this, you want to get clear about how you're going to explain it to your spouse. And this is the challenging thing, because usually what I often tell clients is, yeah, your spouse is probably not going to listen to anything you say at this point. So that's a challenge because usually people are kind of sick and tired of being told what to do by their spouse when they're getting ready to get divorced. Sure. So you might have to approach it in a different way. And they may or may not respect your opinion about that. But if you were to explain it in a way that this is going to be good for you, good for me, good for the children, and we have an opportunity for our children to watch us do this in a way that respects them enough to keep them out of it, respects each other so we're not going to badmouth each other and ruin relationships between children and parents. And we can just move on in a way that we can show up to our daughter's, you know, wedding 20 years from now and and dance yeah. together and have that dance and be in the be in the photos together and not create all this extra anxiety on our kids where where they're already suffering just being kids in the modern world, you know. Yeah, I can't imagine how much relief or even not having to give it a thought that my daughter is going to experience that her mom and I have no problems being in the same room together, that we'll talk, we'll laugh, we'll sit together, we'll eat. We, we can talk about who's paying for what without freaking out about stuff. Like these are the little things that cost big and we don't think about that. Let's segue now into this conversation about the kids and fighting over the children, not just custody, but what do we do? It was hard enough when we were being parents in the same house. Now we're talking about being parents in separate houses, and we know that our soon-to-be ex is not going to do the way things the way we think they should be done. And we want you, Nancy, you tell my ex that they're going to, or by God, I did not raise my daughter the way my ex-wife raised our daughter, but we did have agreements on other big things until, you know, 10 years in where there was a layer of trust that even if I didn't agree with it, I'd be like, I get it. And I don't, I don't have to say anything. I don't know. There was one thing that she did that I felt like I had to show up and say something and vice versa. But that took a level of trust and working together and things like that. So if it's not that, if they, let me give you a perfect example that I know my parents in, on these calls, on this podcast, struggle with. My SO, or soon-to-be XSO, doesn't care if my kid smokes pot. And they let them smoke pot in the house. What on earth does a lawyer, how do you intervene on that? What do you do? Do you get to bring in your opinion about cannabis and things like that and impose it? Or... How do you work with something like that? 
no, you know, it's not about us and the lawyers trying to tell you how to live your lives. It's like, there's a certain amount of acceptance. There's a certain amount of, you know, powerlessness over other people and how they behave. Of course, we want to set standards and boundaries and household rules uh, for your kids that comport with your values. And your spouse may have different values about that. And if you've got an interventionist working with your family, if you can go to a couple, um, that we, we call them divorce coaches. And if you can have a place, a safe place where you and your spouse could have a conversation with another adult that you both trust and who's actually skillful in, say, addiction issues, yeah. uh, you go to that person and start working on it. But like getting all upset and pointing your fingers and don't get me wrong, I have also not only am I doing the collaborative stuff, but historically I did parental alienation cases. I mean, these are the worst cases. It sounds like you alluded to it, like with your friend who was yeah. struggling for 11 years with a spouse who was interfering with his relationship with the child. And it goes in both genders. Sure. Um, sure and the literature is brutal about it. And the impact on the children is devastating. It is talk about that is the height of emotional trauma to a kid who believes falsely that their other parent has rejected them. And then in turn, they reject the other parent and there's no middle ground. There is no and, middle ground. And, and then there's those that are the most devastating cases on the planet. They're worse than the DCF, you know, abuse. And in, in my opinion, like sure. the physical abuse cases, the psychological abuse of a parental alienation case, if you actually have one is immense. And so then you would really need to go. It's incredibly expensive. They're really hard to prove. The courts are very slow to understand the literature. You have to bring in experts. It's a massive, massive litigation effort, at least $100,000 at a minimum well, to deal and, with one of those kind of cases. And know? then even on top of that, now that my friend's son is old enough to see the truth and understand the truth, at 14 years old, he's looking, and now that he spends time with his dad and summers with yeah. his dad and stuff like that, it's like, this is not the guy I was sold. This is, no. this is my dad. That mother has to be very careful. Her relationship with that child is going to be ruined because well, as soon as they get to that point, they could be 15, but more, more commonly in the literature, it's not until they're in their twenties or thirties or maybe forties. And they have had complete estrangement from one parent. Right. And then they find out what actually happened and they are so mad. They, they will reject that other parent, the yep. one who originally alienated them. So there's really a lot of psychological stuff that goes on in a divorce. And so what I would suggest to your listeners is check yourself, like just check in with yourself. Are you doing any of that? Are you going to be one of those kind of parents? You know, if there's legitimate concerns, okay, that's one thing, you know, smoking pot. Okay. On a continuum, it, are they, you know, are they shooting up? Are they, sure. you know, are, where, where are they on the suicide scale? Like what do we need to do to protect our kid Life and, and, like, live. and start, putting it into some perspective and getting support and then talking about it. And it's okay to have different values and to have different opinions and to raise your kids different. They can be very resilient, but what they're not resilient about and they do not bounce back from is you fighting over them or you trying to separate a child from a, from a parent who's loving and wants to be involved in their life. That is like the worst thing you can do. Like in my mind, alienators are like top of the list, public enemy number one. So then let's say agreements are made. It's a collaborative experience. The stuff begins and it lasts six months, two years. And then one of the parents deviates, just says, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't agree with that anymore. I've had a change of values, of heart, of belief. I only said that to get through this BS with you. And now I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I want. You got nothing over me. What I've, I have worked with so many parents 
In the split family parenting, especially when the kids have come to the treatment facility, we get these... And I don't believe parents need to be unified in their parenting. And I know that's an unpopular thing. I have coached many families to successfully be not unified. But even when there's an agreement about, okay, we're going to have different beliefs on this, one of the parents ultimately steps outside the agreement, either the legal or the emotional handshake agreement. What then? Because that's where the real anger and hope, of all the crap we've been through, we at least agreed, and now you won't even do what you said you were going to do again. So now what do we do? We just haul them back into court? Well, you would in a traditional model and and try to get some enforcement of, you know, a written agreement, but it's hard to enforce morals and values. So in a collaborative model, you would come back, you'd get the team back and you would start talking about like what happened, what shifted, what changed, tell us more, like be more curious. Like you can't be curious and angry at the same time. So like if you could start with curiosity and be like, ask new questions, like what what has caused this? What's shifted? You know, it could be a new partner coming in or it could be they read a book or it could be they read an article or who knows what it is. And I think if you lead with the anger and the frustration and the, oh yes, you know, your confirmatory bias is like, well, it's exactly like I said it was going to be like, this person is engaging exactly in the way that I knew it would happen and blah, blah, blah. Because you are already predicting sure. that because of your experience. And what I would suggest is a new frame, which is like, tell me more, what happened to change your mind? And then if you cannot have that conversation with each other, then get a skillful person who understands family systems, who understands divorce, who understands the addiction or whatever the issue is, right. and go back to your coach and start having a conversation, an honest, open conversation. I mean, that's where I would start. And then, you know, is the court going to get involved? It depends how old the kid is. If the kid's already 16, 15, 16, 14, sometimes the courts are like, well, if the kid doesn't want to go or whatever, the courts are not always the most helpful. So they try, but they're not social service agencies and they're not there to help you communicate more effectively with each other and to understand each other's perspectives and to co-parent. I mean, that's not their job. Their job is to issue decisions, to get you divorced, to issue parenting agreements, and to divide property. Like, they're not there for all the rest of this stuff that we're talking about. And that's why I like the collaborative model, because we are. Like, we understand all that complexity. And it's complex. Like, this is complex stuff. And we live in a complex world, right? It is volatile. It's uncertain. It's complex. It's ambiguous. Like, that is what a divorce looks like. That's what a, a family in transition looks like. It is potentially, you know, changing all the time. And if you add in addiction, that adds another level of complexity. And I think it's up to us as human beings at this stage of our evolution to like, take a deep breath and start asking yourself, what do I have control over? And what don't I? And can I have an honest and open conversation? Can I, do I understand my feelings about this? Where are they coming from? And like, engage proper support. I think that's the key. Like the key message is you need proper support. Nobody should be doing this stuff alone. It is, it's terrifying. It's, it it can be very scary and overwhelming and you need good support and people who are going to facilitate conversations, not put you into your separate corners of your self-righteousness and thinking that you've got all the answers and your spouse is an idiot. You know, like that doesn't, that's not such a great way to go forward. I got two final questions and uh, I I don't think either of them will be popular, but I also know that these are questions that parents have come to me with 
uh, especially when they ask me questions that I go, no, no, that's that's be that's outside of my wheelhouse. You need a an attorney for that type of answer. This sounds expensive. Is this more or less expensive than regular, good old fashioned sharky divorce attorneys? <laughs> Definitely less expensive than a good old fashioned brawl in family court. Because what you should know is for. Every hour of trial time, if you're in court for a day, you've got a day-long hearing, your lawyer will spend seven hours, between five and seven hours, preparing for one hour of court time. Oof. So your bill is going to go through the roof um, if you are going to litigation. Plus, you've got experts. Plus, you've got everything else. This has a little bit more of upfront cost because you've got to put your team together. But divorces, if you're going to use lawyers at all, they're going to it's going to be expensive. It's costly, you know, of it's course. Gonna, it's going to cost you something. Like, nothing's free. And you've got all these professionals who are... Does, are coming together to create a safe container so that you can get the professional assistance from the correct professional at the time you need them. So the lawyers are going to take a backseat. We're not going to dominate the process and try to force a solution before people are psychologically ready to get divorced. Like you cannot make a good decision about your children and your future financial security when your head is spinning because you are so crestfallen and heartbroken and like crushed by the fact that your spouse just told you that they want to get divorced or you just found them in bed with a lover or you found it on Facebook or whatever. If your head is going like that, you are not in a position to make a good decision. So the lawyers are not going to force it. We're just going to say, okay, let's just take a, take a deep breath. Why don't you go talk to the coach, like make an appointment with the coach, like every week for the next four weeks. And then we'll come back together and talk about how we're all doing, but it's going to require effort. It's so much easier. I think in our culture to blame and point fingers at other people for our unhappiness than it is to just take responsibility for the fact that we contributed however we did to whatever's happening and what's my role and how can I be better? Like I'm, I believe in like personal empowerment and improvement. Like I don't want to be stuck in bitterness and resentment and, you know, thinking that other people are controlling my destiny. I'd rather take control of what I can, you know? What about the new partner? How much say do they get in this process? Is that another six-day question? <laughs> well, it's such an interesting one. I, you know, no, the partners are, are – it depends, I guess, right? Like, is it somebody that you just met, like, and now all of a sudden you're in love and this is your person that's getting you out of your marriage? And I say, that person has no say of anything. Is this somebody, you know, have you already been separated for a while? You know, I I do not appreciate new new partners coming into anywhere into the divorce process. You know, it's it's so hard as it is. And that just adds another layer of hurt. And so if you can, but it's hard, you know, sometimes people fall in love and they're like, I'm no, I'm really in love. And as the divorce lawyer, I'm like, oh, come on. Really? Like, <laughs> really? Right now? Like, this is the time? Like, you'll have plenty of time. But, you know, but generally speaking, new spouses, they, what we recommend is that if you can manage this, this is such a high level, emotionally intelligent move. If you can have the news, if the new person is there and they're not going away and you can't keep them out <laughs> um, of the process, then have those people talk to each other, like have the spouse talk to the new person and like allow them. Don't keep them separate. Don't keep them enemies. Don't drive a wedge between them. Let the two people work out their relationship with each other, because if this person's going to be involved in the as a step parent or in, in the figure of a step parent and going to be raising kids, you have got to get a handle on what that relationship is going to look like. And you cannot just, you know, keep pointing fingers and saying, oh, that's the person who blew up my marriage and I'm going to hate them forever. Like you could do that. That's a choice. I'm going to suggest not a great one for the kids because the kids are going to then feel divided. They're going to have divided loyalty. 
They're not going to tell you what's really going on at the other spouse's house because they're not going to want to share. They're not going to tell you that they actually like that person, you know, because that person might be okay to them. Or if the person's bad and they don't like them, it could be because the person's bad and they don't like them. Or it could be that they just are telling you that because they don't want you to feel bad because they know you're crushed. So like that's part of it as well, I would suggest. Like you don't want your children taking care of you and your emotional needs when you are getting divorced. You've got to be the parent. And your kids are dealing with their own stuff. And the focus should be on putting the kids first. How do we do it in a supportive way where our children can emerge from this loving both of us, knowing that they're safe, knowing that they're secure, knowing that they've got two parents that love them. And even I would suggest changing the language. Instead of talking about splitting up or splitting houses, talk about having you know a family in two homes. Like you, you're still a family. Like you're a family in two homes. It's gonna look a little different. But you want to know, like, as the parent divorcing, I would suggest that you ask yourself, if my child was describing our divorce to one of their friends, what would we want them to say? Do we want them to say, oh, brace yourself. This is going to be the worst, most excruciating, awful experience of your life. Or do you want them to say, you know, my situation wasn't that bad. Like, both my parents love me. They, I had, I've got two homes. Everybody seems pretty cool. We have, occasionally we have family dinners together, you know, we have a family meeting because they both care about what's going on with me and how I'm doing. And um, they actually seem like better friends and they don't fight. So it's actually, it actually worked out pretty good. So like you have a choice. And so I would just leave you with that idea. Like, can you imagine what your child's going to say about your divorce? And then use that as your guidepost. Your book, Untangling Your Marriage, A Guide to Collaborative Divorce. I know it's on your website, which I want to make sure we we get that too. Can you also get it on Amazon? Is this a get everywhere? Great. Yes. Great. Um, the website, nancysmithlaw.com, N-A-N-C-I, smithlaw.com. Uh, while you've been talking, I've been navigating around it. This is a packful website. There's a lot of resources on here. Um, can I give your phone number as well? Of course. Yeah, this is um, 802-878-8775. Is that the correct one? That is. And anybody can send me an email for sure and go through the website, send me a note, and I'm happy to offer consultations. And it wouldn't be legal advice because I'm only licensed to practice in New York and Vermont, but I can certainly get you oriented and help you find resources in your community because I really do want people to understand that they have an option and that they can shift the paradigm of their own divorce. Knowing you attorneys, you wrote this book so anybody in any state could read this and get the start to get the resources they're looking for. Absolutely. Perfect. Untangling Your Marriage, Nancy Smith, and then nancysmithlaw.com. Remember, it's N-A-N-C-I, smithlaw.com. Nancy, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I have to express how grateful I am to my ex-wife on how she handled it. We were young and she had every reason in the world to leave. There wasn't a day in the last seven years of our relationship that I wasn't high or drunk. I was a good dad, but I was a terrible husband. I was an awful employee. I imagine that what she saw and in, in this day-to-day -day and what she saw in me were just incongruent. But where my gratitude extends the most is that she had the courage to do something that I wouldn't have ever found. 
And that experience was painful enough that it became a catalyst for me changing my life forever. The way she gracefully handled parenting with someone that she had lost a lot of faith in was remarkable. And we're going to our daughter's wedding this coming summer in 2023. And we're going to be there together. We've lived in the same town. We text each other. We laugh. She and my current wife have wonderful conversations and work side by side on some projects. And I'm unbelievably grateful for how she handled my inability to be a good husband. Because it did, it was a massive reason why I am the husband and father I am today. So Spirit, I'm really grateful for you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Beyond Risk and Back. And we'll see you next time.